Welcome everyone, my name is Stephen Holastic and I'm co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to nonprofits. Our line of credit program is easy, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan for your nonprofit. If you'd like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Just remember the time to set up your line of credit is today, not when the emergency actually comes up. And considering that the line of credit doesn't cost anything to set up or uh, or, or until it's used, it just makes it a, a great cash backup plan. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Veronica Ferris from Specialized Alternatives for Families and Youth. Uh, Safi is its nickname. Uh, Veronica is Chief Development and Marketing Officer for Specialized Alternatives for Families and Youth of America. She leads marketing and communication efforts to engage donors, foster parents, and communities in supporting Safi's mission of strengthening families and communities through therapeutic foster care, adoption, behavioral health, family preservation, and older youth services across seven states. Since joining Safi in 2015, Veronica has led the rebranding initiatives for the organization, funded uh, fund development practices, and restructured Safi's foster parent recruitment and practices. These efforts have developed the organizations uh, serve more children and families each year. Veronica, welcome to today's nonprofit MBA podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so today's topic, why diversity include and inclusion are important for nonprofit leaders and management. Uh, you know, it's a great topic, and and I was really happy when we when we, when we uh, you know when you threw out some topics that you felt you you wanted to talk about uh, that this was you know the one that you came up with. Um, I, I really liked it. Uh, uh, can I uh, ask why you kind of wanted to talk about this today? Sure, um, diversity is so important, um, especially. When you're talking about nonprofits, many of us in this industry are serving diverse communities, and it's really important that the people that are serving those communities reflect and look like those communities. Yeah. Now, now when you had come to Safi, uh, uh, was the diversity of the organization uh, not what it should have been? Um, in some aspects, no. Um, in a lot of our line staff and middle managers, um, we had a, we still do have a diverse population of, of individuals that are uh, working for us. But in our senior leadership, um, it was not so. So it really was needed that we um, diversify. One of the, the things I think brought me to SAFI was the ability to be a representative um, on the executive team that not only um, brought a difference in, in my background ethnically, but also a difference in my background in terms of coming from corporate America. So I've not spent majority of my career in nonprofit. I've, I've worked in the for-profit arena for majority of my career. 
He, so do you think you were, do you think at the time that Safi had recruited you uh, because they wanted to diversify their, uh, the makeup of the organization? Or do you think that, you know, you just happened to be the right person at the right time? Or do you think that they, they looked at you and they said, you know, we think we need more uh, diversity and that's why we want to bring, you know, we're, we're, we're going to purposely go out and try to find a pool of talent that is, you know, more reflective of our quote unquote clients. Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, my previous CEO that um, hired me into Safi, um, he's moved on to a different career, uh, but he was pretty intentional in, in his desire to want to hire a female um, as well as an African-American female, because we had a lot of leaders, a lot of individuals at SAFI that um, look like me, but they didn't have representation at the executive level. And so that was um, a, a Herculean call from his employees that he knew, hey, I really need to make sure that I have representation um, on my executive team that reflects not only my staff, but really the communities and the children that we serve. Um, like like you said in the intro, we are in seven states and um, in several of our programs, specifically in therapeutic foster care, it's pretty much um, a, a large population of African-American children. And so it's really important that um, those that we serve, not only the staff that we have within within our organization, but also within the communities, um, that we do have leadership that represents um, that diverse population. You know, it's kind of a tricky question. I'm going to ask you. Uh, it, it always scares someone when you say something like that, doesn't it? But um, so you come into the organization, and you know you're in a couple of meetings. Uh, I mean, you've been there since 2015 now, so you've been there for a number of years. Um, did you come in and you noticed either the decisions they were making, the conversations they were making, uh, the conversations that they were having, uh, uh, the topics that they were talking about, even the language that they were using? Was it surprising to you? As a, a as a you know a female and as African American, you came in. You said, "Whoa, they are really behind the times," or uh, you know, they're not using diversity and inclusion. And you know, me being here is going to make a significant, uh, not I wouldn't say a difference, but a uh, a change in the culture of the organization. Did you notice that when you came in? So I won't say that it was pretty obvious in terms of um, the language that may have been used, but the mindset of some of our leaders, you could see that it was, um, even though in our industry, there's a lot of females. We have a very, um, I would say, female dominated in social work, right? Um, However, Mm. many of the decision makers are are males and white males. And so Mm. when we look at that, and when I joined that's the predominant peer group that I was working with. Um, And in that setting, oftentimes I don't think it was um, intentional bias or intentional things that they were doing. It was, it was the unintentional, the unconscious bias that was coming out in a lot of the decisions that were being made. And so, um, you know, I've actually over this past year have been asked by my present CEO 
to be able to lead our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And so that's been a really um, intentional shift, I think, in making sure that we are um, not only have that representation, but we are making sure our organization understands that we are really supportive and want to be inclusive of all humanity and that this industry really needs to have um, a shift in how we support the communities that we serve. Because oftentimes we are serving marginalized children and families, and there are biases and systemic issues that are in our industry. And so we want to at least be a catalyst to be able to make those changes and those shifts um, so we can positively affect children and families that we serve. I I wonder if the, uh, you know, if when you add diversity and inclusion into your organization, if the, if the changes are so subtle that they're not always the most obvious, but is there any specific example that you have where you said, you know what, because we started to move more toward diversity and inclusion, this, this happened this way, whereas it would have happened differently if we hadn't made that change. Were there, I mean, I hate to put you on the spot. Was there any specific situations that you said, you know, because of our diversity, because of our inclusion, we made a better decision because of this. Can you think of anything like that? Absolutely. So some of the things that we are intentionally doing right now is looking at our our policies and procedures, making sure that our policies are not bias or, um, you know, have any kind of implicit bias in our practices. So we are making that intentional shift mm-hmm. Um, we are making sure that we are training our leaders um, and really starting within. That has been our approach. We know that um, if we can fix within what's inside our house, then ultimately when our visitors come, when our clients come and we're serving the community, um, it's going to spill over into that community. Um, we're not shying away from diversity and inclusion or walking on eggshells because there are individuals that don't embrace it. Um, and we're not forcing it upon people, but there are certain trainings that we're requiring our staff to go through and our leaders to go through to make sure that there's understanding. In fact, we recently, um, I've been working with the YWCA locally in Columbus, Ohio, to try and partner with them on their racial justice and equity training. Um, so we're looking to implement that really soon within our, within our workforce and within our leaders. Um, in addition to that, we're making sure that we have cultural competency training as it pertains to our foster parents, because our foster parents that we serve, they are serving diverse children. And we want to make sure that they are also culturally competent when they are welcoming children into their home that don't look like them or don't have the same um, background or belief systems that they have. You know, um, I I, I, I want to ask this question because, you know, I think we all, uh, I, I, I worked for Xerox 25 years ago and Xerox was great. This is 25 years ago now, actually longer than that, between 35 and 25 years ago. I mean, I went through diversity training and that was, you know, a long time ago. And it's still, you know, uh, it's still imperative that organizations, you know, uh, teach this, but were there are there maybe you could give me two things that you've seen that goes on that you know and you maybe you could you, you can be really very direct 
and that you have seen in your organization that either through the reading of their policies and procedures or the way that you were dealing with your own clients that were sexist, you know, whatever you want to uh, say that you, you think really stood out to you. You're like, wow, this is really not right or old school or whatever. Could you maybe give us some examples? Yeah. So um, if I think about, you know, an, an example to give you that, that um, was maybe off color <laughs> that, that we shouldn't have been doing. Um, for example, oftentimes we um, would allow families to kind of choose um, the type of youth that they want to serve. Right. And so people can still make a preference. However, we were not making sure that um we were surrounding those families and equipping those families well enough to understand certain cultures, right, within the community where we're getting referrals from to make sure that those parents are equipped. They were, you know, they they met all the requirements. They go through all the training. Um, we are a therapeutic foster care agency. And so we train on trauma and um, we make sure that our families can serve those kiddos. However, there were certain things where we were we were not really, in my opinion, um, really deliberate in making sure that um, a family didn't discriminate. Um, and I would say we had uh, in the past have staff that may have a certain mindset, right? And you can't shift people's what's in their hearts, right? Sometimes when you have something that's this, that's just your belief system, you can't change that. However, we want to make sure that you are respectful. You may, you may have a certain belief, but we want to hope hopefully shift so that folks value the importance of diversity, right? And making sure that everyone is treated equal, that everyone has the opportunity to thrive within our organization and we're not holding people back or setting people up for um, for failure, in a sense, by not embracing the diversity that they bring to the table. So do you, let's say you have people in those, like I have some a little bit of experience with what you're talking about in an indirect way. So my mother, who's 97, has a uh, live-in uh, helper, and uh, she's from Ghana and her daughter um, I met um, her daughter is a, uh, was a nurse and she decided to become a foster parent and, um, and she's from Ghana and she has two uh, white kids, a nine-year-old boy with severe ADHD and a 14 year old uh, girl. And I, I, I've met them a number of times and I can't tell you how impressed I was with how beautiful the kids are, how well behaved, how the love is showing between the two uh, by, and how great of a mother, you know, a foster parent she is to these kids. Um, and, and so, you know, if you had somebody on your staff who said, um, I don't think a, uh, 
white person should be a foster kid to two black kids or a, uh, a black uh, person should be a foster kid to two white kids. How would you, what would you do to kind of bring them into uh, your way of thinking? Mm-hmm. Well, that's why we're changing. And that's part of the changing of the policies in our practice, because if that's our procedure where they cannot discriminate and we have practices um, set up that way, then that won't allow those types of things to happen. Um, yeah. Oftentimes we are, we are making sure um, little things, right? Like learning different cultures in terms of um, hair, right? Hygiene. There's a lot of different things that go on um, ethnically and, and culturally in different um for, for different people. And so we want to make sure that we are equipping our families in a very, you know, friendly and fun learning way to make sure that they understand certain things that little black girls might need differently than a little white girl or Hispanic um, child. Right. So uh, just understanding those little nuances uh, can help a child feel um, comfortable for the time that they are there because Ultimately, foster care is not forever. We don't want to have children in foster care forever. We want them to safely return to their family of origin when it is safely possible or to be adopted if that is not um, the path for them to to go back home. So when those situations occur, we want to make sure those families are, if they are, for example, from, from a religious standpoint, right? What does that child practice religiously? Making sure they're still exposed to what they what they know, what their upbringing is, um, and that we are respectful of that and we embrace that, so that child can ultimately continue to thrive and be successful in life. So, I mean, you address the issue about you know basically making sure you update your your processes and procedures and and your manual and stuff like that, which is a great first start to changing culture, right? Um, but then there's also that person or people in your organization who, you know, they, they may still have a strong opinion against making a change. Do you, what do you do with those, with that type of person or those people who are, you know, still sticking to their guns? What, what do you do in those cases? Well, one of the things that we are doing is we're changing how we're bringing people into the organization, right? So making sure that who we're bringing through our doors are aligned with our values and actually have um, the, mm. the same beliefs and values, not to be a monolith, but to make sure that they are okay and embrace the way we do business. Um, the other aspect of that is making sure that once if folks are inside currently that have... Um, uh, off-color, what I would say off-color um, beliefs or practices and don't want to get aligned, we're making sure that they are prepared to take their best next step, right? So that 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 may not be with Safi. If you are not aligned and not willing to, um, to do the things that we're asking you to do in terms of diversity and inclusion and embracing um, the way that we want to serve children and communities, then Safi might not be the place for them. And it's okay. People have that right to make that decision. And as well as an employer, we have the right to make the decision. But if someone's not blatantly um, doing things against our policies and practices, then we just continue to love on them. We continue to, to um, expose them 
to the trainings, to the diversity um, initiatives that we have within SAFI. And so that way, hopefully by exposure and through connectivity and understanding, um, they'll begin to come around. But it really is about are they are they intentionally or being deliberate in their um, discrimination? If that is not the case, then no, we are not going to exit someone from the organization. But when there's intentional, deliberate discrimination, we do have practices that would not um, keep an individual on board for that. Yeah, I, I want to take a step back too, and just um, just to make sure that uh, when I gave the example of my mother's helpers. Uh, daughter taking care of the kids had, you know, I wanted to make sure everybody understood that it never dawned on me that at the time and even now that we have that there was a black mother and two kids, uh, two white kids. That wasn't uh, the example that I was giving. It was my first experience with foster kids. Mm -hmm. And what really surprised me in the situation was how much the kids loved the foster mother and how much the foster mother loved the kids and were so patient with them. It was, you know, it wasn't the black white thing. It was the, mm -hmm. you know, this foster relationship. I was like, wow, these are, these kids were just really happy. And, you know, unfortunately in one of the situations, uh, the mother was trying to get one of the kids back and uh, you know, it, I, I hope it. I hope it all works out for the best of the kid, of course. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, so when you were in corporate America, did you see that they did a better job of diversity and inclusion than at the nonprofit uh, that you had joined? Um. No, I, I would say that um, the companies that I worked for previously. Um, they were intentional. I think they were a little further ahead um, in some aspects and, and, and also because of the size. So um, my previous employers were pretty large. Um, prior to coming to SAFI, I worked for Cardinal Health, which is, you know, a fortune on the Fortune 20. Um, so big, huge company and thousands of employees. And so they were very intentional with employee resource groups. So I would just say, just because of the size of the organization, um, the things that they had in place, um, they were light years ahead of where we are um, at SAFI. And um, I would say also they were intentional in terms of hiring someone. They have different a different budget, <laughs> of course, right? Um, they're selling products where we're we're services organization. And when you look at that, um, they can be a little more intentional in terms of hiring someone dedicated to diversity, equity, and inclusion. For us, you know, it's it's a a scale, right? Can we really afford it? But we want to do it. And so since we want to do it, how can we have someone that's willing to be an executive champion of this work? So it's not that we won't down the road. I think our CEO, my CEO is currently um, open to the idea of hiring someone that this is their sweet spot. This is what they do. Um, and they have a longevity and career in diversity, equity, and inclusion. But right now, um, just given the size and scope of our organization, he did not want to let this opportunity pass us. So it was, hey, how can we have a champion internally that's that's willing to do this work and make sure that we get better at it and that we are intentional with our efforts so that we can make our 
our workspaces, our offices in all of our seven states um, feel inclusion, inclusive and that our employees feel like bringing 100% of themselves to work. And that spills over into the quality care that we provide families and children. What's the, uh, how big is the organization? How many employees work at uh, SAFI? We have a little over 500 employees across all of our locations. Wow. Oh, I didn't realize it was that big. That's big. Um, is there an organization that you guys have benchmarked against to, you know, you know, there's two types of, uh, benchmarking there's benchmarking because you want to compare yourself to somebody else. And then there's the, another benchmarking where where it's like, they're the best at this and we want to try to achieve that same level of achievement uh, in regardless of where it is. Do you benchmark against any other organizations where you use them as a role model and you watch what they do and then you kind of implement it? Uh, or, or do you do any of that? So we do do some benchmarking. We try to, you know, run our own race. Um, I've been a big comp- proponent of making sure that when we look outwardly, that we are looking across all industries, not just nonprofit, um, given both. And from a diversity standpoint, my CEO, our CFO, we all come from diverse backgrounds in terms of corporate America. Um, my CFO, he, he, uh, you know, used, used to work for a major company, um, in, in corporate America, as well as our CFO. So we have a, a diverse business background. All three of us have MBAs. Um, and so when we look a lot of times at the work that we're doing and how we want to take the organization, we're not just looking at, um, folks like us that do the same work that we do in the same industry. We're also looking past that and saying, Hey, what does Starbucks do? Right. What does Target do? What does organizations that are, you know, in a different industry that we are, but they're just doing a phenomenal job at it. Right. So when we benchmark, we try and look um, past just our industry and seeing what other companies are doing to bring innovation as well as looking within ourselves. What do you think is the, the new hot button for diversity um, and inclusion? What do, what do you think is like, where, where, what's on the horizon that's coming down that, that you think that a lot of our listeners should be aware of? Um, I think the big term, right, is equity, right? Equity and opportunity. And not from just an equal standpoint, because we understand oftentimes when you look at e- equality, um, you know, folks want to have equal opportunity. But just that that equity factor of if when I think about our children, right, I think about our programs, Um, many families thrive, but when you are saddled with um, poverty or you live in a community that doesn't have the same resources that you do, you don't have access to Wi-Fi. Um, Through the pandemic, we discovered because we had to go virtual, right? Like everyone had to go virtual. And a lot of our trainings, we had to go virtual. Um, We had to move to telehealth uh, where we were serving and doing client um, visits virtually. And some of our families didn't have Wi-Fi. Right. So when we think about 
equity and we think about diversity, a lot of things are really about how do we just bring people to where they have an even playing field, right? So they can have the same jumping off point because if someone is starting, you know, light years ahead of you because they live in a community that has, you know, a grocery store that has fresh, fresh groceries. And they're not just looking at going down the street to a convenience store that doesn't have fresh produce. It's all of those factors um, that really impact uh, how we serve communities. And it's just important that we try and contribute to the equity factor. Um, and so a lot of the work that we've done in terms of trying to raise dollars is really to help our families have an even playing field so they their children can continue to thrive and be competitive in the spaces that they're in, in terms of school and having that ability to go to college. Because the, the statistics are really dismal for, for youth that age out of foster care um, without having um, a loving and caring and nurturing uh, family to rely on. Yeah, it's it just seems I mean, I'm 56 and it just seems that the amount of walls that are now put up in front of people are a lot different and higher than it was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. I mean, I'll give you an example. I, I, I live in New Jersey and uh, there was a statistic, which I believe, which said that a person had to work 127 hours uh, a week. Uh, if they were in the lower income to be able to afford to pay for their housing. Uh, and, you know, it's like, I, I'm a big believer that if someone works hard, uh, they should have a safe place to live and they should have food to eat. They're working hard. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what we want. And you, you, you look at that and you say, someone has to work 127 hours, which I believe, um, at a lower income level at, at like a fast food place. And uh, they can't even have those two things. Mm -hmm. right? It's just almost impossible, you know, and, and, you know, you, these, these barriers that we put up. So what, one of my questions that I wanted to ask you before was, did you, do you ever look at the, the income level of the people that you're hiring because, you know, I deal with nonprofit executive directors all the time. I deal with a lot of executives at nonprofits um, because of the, my company. And, you know, they're a lot of times, well, the board people usually are very, very wealthy, right? And so did you ever, did, did your organization ever, you know, specifically go to hire people because you thought that they fit the income level, the lower income level of the people that you're serving. It's like an advanced diversity level. Mm -hmm. Have you ever no, thought I, of that? So I got your, I get your question. No, we haven't. So when we are hiring individuals and I would say more than half of our workforce are social workers um, or have some degree mm. of, of clinical background, um, we're really looking for people that are just mm. phenomenal clinicians. <laughs> we really are not paying attention yeah. to to their income. We're looking for people that are compassionate, that understand trauma, that understand a lot of the, the modalities that we are um, using and serving children um, and families with. And so those are the, the key things that we look for, not really looking at the, the income. We also try and make sure that we're hiring from those communities though, right? So if we are serving, we're in a lot of rural areas, 
urban areas. So we are in a variety of diverse um, communities across all of our states. And so when we are hiring, we are intentionally looking, do people have a connectivity to that community? Because if they do, they can resonate with the individuals they're serving in that community. When when you're going through an interview of somebody um, and you want to test, that's not the right word, you want to investigate to see if they're going to fit into the part of your culture, which embraces diversity and inclusion. How, how do you go about doing that? I mean, is Mm -hmm. that part of the interview process to see if someone is not going to fit your cultural values in that area? Those are the things that we are, we are tweaking right now. We're making some adjustments with our hiring practices um, to incorporate that. Currently, we really test people on the mission, right? Um, their value, looking yeah. at our values and do they align? And, and they typically are writing, you know, kind of an essay um, about our mission and how that aligns to what they, what their beliefs are. Um, but we're looking at more stringent, I won't say stringent, but a little bit more detailed way to understand are those individuals the right fit culturally for our organization? Um, because it works two ways, right? We wouldn't want to bring someone in that that we're just completely not a fit um, and they don't align with our beliefs. They're going to be miserable in their job and we're going to be miserable having them. So it's important that you know when we're interviewing individuals, individuals are interviewing us as well to make sure that we align with what they believe and what they um, value in, in, in serving the populations that we serve. Can you envision some of the questions that you would try to uncover to see if somebody is a cultural fit, the organization in regards to the diversity? I mean, I could think, I could think of one right now, and I know this is a work in progress for you. Um, again, the, the companies that I've always had, and I've had six companies in 25 years, They've all been smaller companies. So I think the most employees, well, the most employees I've had is 28, right? Um, So, you know, it's a little different level than 500 uh, like you have. But I could think one of the questions that I might ask if diversity and inclusion was a high priority and such as is the organization, as I would say is, our policy is in regards to our, our diversity and inclusion is this. What do you think about that? And if, if the person were to come back and say, well, uh, you know, you know, I think uh, we all should be in our own groups, you know, and, you know, have you seen the type of questions or things that you think you, you think that you might want to advise the hiring managers to look for, to make sure that people are fitting that culture? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question and a great example. Um, Some of the things that we do look for, we turn it on to like the clients, right? Because oftentimes, like I said, more than half of our workforce um, are clinicians and social workers. So we would give examples around the type of youth that would come into care and how we might make a decision on the family that we place them with, right? So giving a description of a family, maybe a particular family's belief, like would you place that child with this particular family if they didn't Uh. have this kind of belief, right? So we want to make sure that um, not only are 
the people we're hiring are going to be good colleagues and peers um, and workers internally. But really, we don't want to do more harm and more damage to children um, and families uh, because they've gone when they've come to us, they've gone through a lot. They're oftentimes um, tied to the judicial system. You know, they're, they, they have a lot of people in their lives in terms of caseworkers and social workers. And so they've already experienced in those children, depending on how long it's taken for them to get to us, um, they may have experienced a lot of trauma in their lives. Um, and, and just being taken from your natural family is traumatizing. No matter the dysfunction you might come from, you still love your family. And so when that happens, we don't want to do more harm to those children. And so it's really imperative that our employees understand that wholeheartedly and understand that we could ultimately be contributing to more trauma on a youth if we are placing them in a family that is not the best fit for them, that doesn't embrace who they are, um, that doesn't respect their boundaries, things of that nature. So we don't want to license families in that respect, but we also want to make sure that we are making the right match um, so that that family can be successful in caring for those children. Um, no family's perfect. None of us are perfect. We all have shortcomings, but we want to make sure that we are making the right match so that um, children can thrive. You know, I hate to ask this question. There's been a lot of tough questions. Uh, I don't mean just for, for you to answer them, but for me to ask them. Um, it, it, you know, I, in the last uh, couple of years, political, um, the word came out of my, uh, I can't think of the right word. Politics have been very controversial and uh, people have gone to extremes on, on many different levels. Have you, have in the regards to diversity and inclusion, have you seen situations where interviews and people, their, their views politically were such an extreme uh, away from the culture of your organization that you were like, listen, this person's just not going to match the values that we have here from a political standpoint. Have you seen situations like that? Absolutely. So we are, um, you know, we are, we don't choose a side of the aisle. You know, we're not making yep. a stance in one political direction or another as an organization. Um, however, when we look at um, the values and views of, of, of the families that we bring on board. I think over the past several years, we've been able to see um, more and more people are more vocal about their views, right? They're, they're yeah. things that we wouldn't have discovered before. People are more outgoing and sharing um, what they feel and what they dislike. And so we do monitor that. We look at that. And when we are aware of those types of things that might be negative or detrimental to a youth, we make sure that we're not placing a child in that particular home. Um, we have in some of our more rural areas, um, we've discovered where there are families that have um, very discriminatory views. And in those situations, we are not placing children in, in those homes. Um, and we, we are okay with severing ties if 
a family is going to be discriminatory to any youth that comes into care. So we do look out for those things. Um, mm. We're fortunate that a lot of the people that that come to raise their hand and say they want to become a fo- foster parent, you know, in many of our states, it's 30 plus hours to, to go through training. We do a home study. It's very intense process and a long process. And so we're able to really uncover a lot of things where we're not licensing and moving a family through through the process if we discover some very deplorable type of of um you know situations that might be going on in a particular home it must be a difficult conversation with that family to be able to articulate why you're not going to let them adopt somebody uh let's you know take care of somebody uh it must be uh, i i don't think i'd be good at it god being able to be so um you know, not direct. So he must be, you know, good at it. We definitely have to, I mean, what I've, my mantra ever since I joined Safi um, has been about improving the customer experience. And so that's improving our foster parents' experience, improving improving our youth's experience um, because they're our customers. And um, being customer-centric you know, making sure that people feel valued. And even in those situations, right, it may not be that we don't completely license a family, but we just know which youth we would not pair with that family, right? We know, hey, we would not want to put this type of youth in this home because of these beliefs. Um, And so that's the, that's the, the delicate balance that we have to make um, in caring for children is really being watchful and mindful of what, Um, values are in the home. And that's why um, in child welfare, you know, a home study is very important and it's a critical component because we don't just interview the people that want to foster. We're interviewing any family members that might be in the home where, you know, you have to produce um, letters of recommendation. So there's a very intense process to make sure we truly understand how is this person going to be when they have um, a child that's not their biological child coming into their home and what's their philosophy on caring for children. Um, so it's, it's really intense process. And that's why there's always a need for foster families because there's just not that many out there. There's way more children in need of care than there are for people to care for them. Yeah. I was going to ask you that question because I was just curious. Um, uh, I'm sure our listeners are too. Uh, you know, is there a ratio of kids looking to go to foster kids versus available foster parents? You know, is it like, you know, 10 kids for every one family that's willing to uh, be qualified to take on kids? What, you know, what is the ratio, so to speak? So I don't, off the top, I don't know the exact ratio, but I can tell you there's over 450,000 children in the U.S. in foster care. Mm. And um, the number of families, there's some data out there that shows the number of families per state, and they're like in the thousands, right? So you have very few families um, that are are willing or able um, to care for children. And oftentimes people will want to throw dollars at the problem. And we do, we need, we need dollars, right? We need money to help sustain, um, to make sure that we're able to pay our employees a decent wage, um, because we compete 
on a social work standpoint, that's a whole nother conversation, but we compete, um, you know, social workers can yeah. go into the school system. They can go into hospitals. There's just a lot of different places they yeah. can take their talents. And so when they bring their talents to SAFI, we want to retain them and retain really quality, quality individuals. But with that, um, just going back to your question in terms of the number of children, it is a battle um, every week where we get referrals daily that we can't place a child or we can't place a sibling group um, simply because there's just not enough families to care for them. Um, So we're constantly recruiting. We're constantly looking for families. And there's just a variety of ways that people can foster. They don't have to be a full-time foster parent. We need respite parents. And respite are are individuals that are willing to just relieve a foster family, um, whether they're on vacation or whether they're, you know, a weekend or just parents just need a a break, right? Even if you have a natural parent and you have your own children, sometimes you need a break. You need an aunt or uncle to pick them up for the weekend just so mom or dad can get a break. And so we need respite parents. We need emergency parents, parents that will be willing to take the kiddo in the middle of the night um, and that can stay for a few days. Um, And we need long-term parents. We need parents that are going to be in it for the long haul to see a child matriculate from grade to grade and ultimately either get adopted or reunited with their, with their uh, family of origin. How how are you funded? Great question. So, um, I would say 95% of, of our, our revenue and our income is government funded and that we have contracts with um, county and state um, agencies that contract with us to care for kiddos. Um, that other 5% comes from, you know, private, the private sector. So we really want to, you know, get donors, individual supporters that can support our work because the government dollars covers basically our basic need dollars in dollars out. Right. Um, so those additional funds that the community provides us really helps us to do that extra, right. It will help when we do reunify a child with their, with their, their family of origin, right? We can make sure that that family has a little bit of something extra and that child has a smooth transition back into the home. When a child is adopted, we can do great things for that for that family and that child when they get adopted. Um, summer camps. Uh, right now we have a, a youth program that we're kicking off um, a summit for, for our teens and our tweens. So making sure that we can support um, youth empowerment and youth enrichment. Um, so there's just a lot of needs that are are not covered by the contracts that we have um, through through the government. Yeah, it drives me crazy when I you know hear from my friends that oh I don't want to pay anymore I don't want to pay taxes and uh, you know we don't I, I don't you know the taxes are wasted and then you, I'm like do you like your roads <laughs> you know do you like do you like your good school system. And I go, and then I would add to that, do you like what Safi does? You know, do you think that they're doing the right thing, trying to help these kids? I think people don't know enough about where their money's going. And uh, if I think if they did, they would say, you know what, maybe paying taxes isn't such a bad thing. So I'm glad, I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing. And thank you for, for not, not only coming on today's podcast, but thank you for, helping these kids, um, it, you know, I think it breaks everybody's heart to hear that someone's not being loved. And we, that's, you know, uh, I think it's something that's so important in, in being a human being, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, yeah. um, it, it was an opportunity when I joined Safi, it was an opportunity to mirror 
um, my passion for youth, my passion for for humanity, and my passion in terms of marketing and development. So bringing those two um, opportunities together has been has been wonderful. Great. So uh, I would like to thank so very much uh, Veronica Ferris from Specialized Alternatives for Family and Youth, Sathy for short, for coming on today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Uh, the nonprofit MBA podcast has become extremely popular. Um, I think that if every executive director or uh, board listened to every single one of our special guests here, your organization would really get some great ideas. Uh, it's really fabulous, the people we have coming on, like Veronica. If you like today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app to help us get the word out. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you could call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Veronica, if, uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you or your organization, how would they go about doing that? Absolutely. So to reach us on our organization, visit our website. It's www.safy.org. So safi.org. And then to get in contact with me, um, I'm on social media. Um, I am at Veronica underscore 0401 on Instagram. And, um, you know, you can email me if you have any questions about our work or you're interested in learning more about becoming a foster parent at Ferris V at safi.org. Thank you. Very good. And for all of our listeners out there, you are all making the world a better place. I thank you for that. We all have to do our part. I have to do a better job. Uh, and I'm going to continue to try work harder to do a good job. And, uh, and again, I just want to thank you for everything you do. But however, don't forget to take a step back uh, remember what you're doing and take some time off to, to do some mental health for yourself. Um, the winter is going to be coming around. Some of us live in colder areas and uh, the weather's beautiful right now and get outside and enjoy. Can't smell the roses, but you probably can smell the fall coming. Everybody have a fantastic day. <laughs>